The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 30, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of the Lord. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord, I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my morning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Our sermon verses today are Exodus 33, 12 through 23. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. 33 verse 12 says, um, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Then the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." Today, we're going to come to the center verses of the lengthy chiasm, which comprises this and the surrounding chapters. We'll also start heading back down the other side of it towards its completion. The verses which surround the center verse speak of God's grace. Moses had been told that he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but he's unsure as to how far that actually extends. Does it include his beloved people Israel? He asked that it would, and he goes into great length to ensure that the message he has given is perfectly understood and without any ambiguity. It is not that he doesn't trust the Lord. It is that he doesn't trust the people. 
They are prone to err and they're stiff-necked towards the Lord. And so he will methodically work to make sure that the grace he has been given will also be grace for them. Our text verse today comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's verse two. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. Israel has a long history of disobedience and falling away from the Lord. And yet, if you talk to many Jews today, they are under the assumption that they are somehow deserving of God's favor. They have an attitude that because of who they are as a people, they are exempt from the very laws that established them as a people. It's often hard to have a dialogue with a Jew about righteousness because they feel that they already inherently possess it. It is as if the grace that was bestowed upon them was a once-for-all-time thing. It is as if to them God stamped them with a seal of approval, declared them righteous, and that is that. As long as they have this impression, they have no need of Jesus. What good is imputed righteousness when you already have your own inherent righteousness? But one of the verses today is used by Paul to show us the folly of this type of thinking on their part. And not to get too down on the Jews, there are oodles and buckets full of people who think they are inherently righteous before God on their own merits. There are others who think they are righteous because of what they have done for their church, or even more, simply because of the church they attend. Think of the Roman Catholic Church there. But the lesson of the Bible is that all need grace. If one needs grace, it means that they have a lack of which they need to be filled. One cannot merit grace. And so if that grace is lacking, then there is no other way to replace it. On the other hand, there are those who know that they have a problem and what they seek is mercy. However, one must know where God's mercy is derived from. How do you not get what you do deserve? That is the question, and it leads right back to the grace. If the grace is lacking, the mercy cannot be provided because the mercy is the result of grace. It's a horrible cycle for much of the world, and it is something that all people need to ponder and to rectify. For corporate Israel, Moses secured the grace, but for individual Israelites, there is still a need for what God offers. Moses did his part. Each Jew must do his part, and every one of us needs to do our part as well. Let us seek the Lord while he may be found. He has offered us a rock of refuge and a place of safety. The Bible tells us all of the details if we will simply reach out and take them. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is, show me your way. It's verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In the last passage, the people had stripped off their ornamentation as a sign of remorse. They further had to be shown that the Lord was no longer going to dwell in their midst, but a far distance off from them. They had to go outside the camp to seek him. Those in the camp simply worshiped from afar. Their acts of self-humiliation now lead to Moses beginning a discourse, petitioning the Lord for his favor and to once again allow the honor of having his glory dwell in their midst. Without his divine presence, there would be a notable fracture between him and the people of Israel. In verse 11, it said, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
He is using this familiarity to draw out from the Lord his divine favor. He is looking for clarification of what it means when he said that he would send an angel before them. What angel? He wants the same assurance which came back in Exodus 23 with the words, my angel. In the previous passage, I noted the extremely complicated nature of the chronology of these verses. Scholars have struggled to determine when things were said and how they fit together. But we learned that the details which we are looking at here in chapter 33 and all the way through verse 9 of chapter 34 chronologically belong between verses 33 and 34 of chapter 32. In Exodus 23 verse 30, the angel of the Lord was promised to go up with them. In Exodus 33:7, which chronologically belongs between those two verses I just mentioned, an angel has been determined to go before them. But who it is is not known. Now Moses is questioning that. Just who is it that will go before us? This is a clue that we are in the middle of those verses now. Only when we come to verse 34:10 will we be again moving forward from that point. I believe the reason for this is to show us the chiasm which spans these chapters. It is showing the logical nature of what is spoken for us to understand what is going on. I know this is complicated, and it may seem to make very little or no difference at all in the overall scheme of things, but it is detailed, and it is a very important part of the redemptive narrative that we're looking at. Will the Lord remain among his people or not? That is the question. Moses is working to determine that he will be. He has been told to bring the people up to Canaan, but unless it is the Lord who leads them, he thinks it's unwise to move even a single inch. What he is doing now is establishing to Israel that without the Lord in their midst, they have no security, no surety, and they are just like all of the other people who are on the face of the earth. Verse 12 going on, yet you have said, I know you by name. This has not been specifically recorded in the past. However, the Lord called to Moses by name from the burning bush. He has also been called by name from the midst of the cloud as well. Such an act implies the greatest sense of divine favor. Those whom he favors in an intimate way are said to be known by name. It is the same as any king in a kingdom. All are subjects, but those who are known by name are those who have special access to the king. To the Lord, the name signifies the being, and thus the special election to which one is called. This is seen elsewhere in Scripture, such as in the calling of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Here's what it says in Isaiah 54. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by name. I have named you, though you have not known me. It is also what Jesus did when Peter first encountered him. Here's what happens in John chapter 1. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Verse 12 continues, And you have also found grace in my sight. Again, this has never been really actually recorded in Scripture. However, it has been implied in several ways. In the last chapter, the Lord's anger was evident when he said he would destroy Israel and make Moses' name great instead. After Moses petitioned him on Israel's behalf, the Lord relented for his sake. In both instances, he found grace in the Lord's sight. At the same time, Israel was granted mercy. 
Verse 13, now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way. This verse brings in the full picture of Moses acting as a mediator on behalf of Israel. He is thus a picture of Christ who ever lives to intercede for his people before the Father. Because of the grace which he has been given, he submits his request. But first, by restating the fact that he has already been given grace. If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way. If in fact he has found grace in the sight of the Lord, then he would like to know what the plans of the Lord are for the conduct of the people. How will they be led? By whom will they be led? To Moses, proof of having found grace is tied up in whether the Lord will be with his people or not. Verse 13 going on, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. This is similar to Jacob's wrestling with the Lord by the Jabbok River. He is struggling with the Lord and will not let go of him without first receiving a blessing. However, this blessing is not for himself, but for Israel. Just as the Lord blessed Israel by the river, Moses seeks a blessing for Israel while in the wilderness. To Moses, grace to him implies also grace towards the people. If they are given good and sure promises, then Moses will feel satisfied that he has, in fact, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 13 going on, and consider that this nation is your people. Moses here looks back to Exodus 32, verse 7, where the Lord said, Go, get down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. As he did then, he again reminds him, meaning the Lord, that they are his people and that they bear his name. He had acknowledged that time and time again before Pharaoh and before the people of Egypt. He said something like, I have seen the affliction of my people and let my people go and on and on. He has claimed them as his own people. Moses asked him to consider this yet again. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My face shall go and I will give rest to you. The face of the Lord is the Lord. His face indicates his presence. This is reflected in the words of Isaiah 63. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. That's Isaiah 63, verse 9. This verse ends the upward climb of the chiasm which spans these many verses. The Lord has spoken. The wrestling match seems to have ended. Moses appears to have received his blessing. The Lord himself will be present, and it will be he who assures that rest is given, meaning the land of promise. However, Moses still senses a note of ambiguity. The words, with you, that I just read are inserted into this verse. The coming verses will show that he is still concerned that this may only be a personal promise from the Lord to him. What he desires is that it will be a renewal of what was previously promised to the congregation as a whole. Show me your way, O Lord, this I pray. Reveal to me that which I need to know. Show me what you have in store for me this day and reveal to me the path on which I should go. Here in your word I come to seek your face and here in your word do I come each day. It guides me in life from place to place. Show me your way, O Lord, this I pray. Open my eyes to the glory set before me. Show me your way, O Lord, this I pray. Lead me to the still waters and to the glassy sea. Be with me as I open this word to read each and every day. Our second thought is show me your glory. Verses 15 through 18. 
Verse 15, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. This verse here forms the center of that long and detailed chiasm. It is a verse which reflects Moses' adamant desire that Israel as a people would be considered sacred to the Lord. Moses again ties the people in with himself. The previous verse said that Moses would be given rest, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the congregation would receive it with him. For this reason, he reiterates his request. What would happen if the people rebelled again? What would the Lord do if they fell into national sin? Would the Lord again reject them? Moses is looking for the highest assurance that Israel will be led to its place of rest. No matter what they do, he is asking for the guarantee that as a people, they will continue to receive the grace of his presence. As John Lang comments concerning this verse, he says, better to die in the wilderness than to reach his goal without that guidance. Verse 16, for how long then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? This is an obvious question here. Grace is unmerited favor. How can one know that they have received unmerited favor unless they have a knowledge of that favor? If they made it to Canaan and completely subdued the land, would it have been the favor of the Lord, or maybe it would have been the favor of lesser gods like time and chance? Isaiah speaks of exactly these type of things in Isaiah 65. He says, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepares a table for Gad, which means fortune, and furnish a drink offering for many, which means destiny. Or it could be the greatness of Israel as a people apart from the Lord. History has spoken of this belief time and time again, as recorded in the Bible and in the history of the people throughout the ages. From the Bible, in Judges chapter 7, it says this, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Just as the Lord cherished his honor in both of those instances, Moses desires that the people receive the Lord's grace now. His divine presence among them is the guarantee of this grace that he seeks. Without it, there would be no indication that they were different from any of the other nations on the whole face of the earth. In short, being the Lord's people would mean nothing more than being the people of any pagan god. Verse 16 continues, So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. By the guarantee of the divine presence among them, a distinction will be evident. The word translated here as, so we shall be separated, is pala. This is only the fourth of seven times that it's going to be seen in the Bible. It is found only in the book of Exodus and in the Psalms. It comes from a primitive root, which means to distinguish. In Psalm 139, it is used in its more precise form. Here's what it says there. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully, that word pala, made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. The intent of Moses' words are that the presence of the Lord will indicate that they are marvelously separated from all of the people on the face of the earth. For the Christian, it would be the sealing of the Holy Spirit who marvelously separates us unto God from all other people. Verse 17, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. Hadabar hazeh asher dibarta e'eseh. The word this that you have spoken, I will do. At last, the full and complete response which Moses sought has been realized. He has displayed amazing persistence towards the Lord. 
having taken full advantage of the face-to-face friendship previously mentioned. In his diligence, he has now been rewarded. The words are in response to the petition of the previous verse, but they are also inclusive of the entire request presented by Moses, as is evidenced in the substance of the corresponding branches of the chiasm. Those words comprise verse 13, which said, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. The Lord promised to not only make them his people, but that they would remain his people. They would not be cut off from this state, even if they were to erringly fall away or do so individually or nationally. Punishment would come, but he would, for once and forever, consider this nation his people. And the reason why this is important is because Moses, he's debating with the Lord. Are you going to be with us or not? We want you to be with us. And the Lord says, yes. And then he says, well, maybe that's just me that he's promising. So he says, I want it to be collectively for the people of Israel. The reason why is because Israel keeps wandering from the Lord. They've only been under him for a short amount of time. They've seen all of the miracles and all of the marvels, and yet they stray from the Lord. And he's thinking long-term. What if the people violate the covenant again and again and again? Will they be your people? And the reason why this is important, and all of this seems so unimportant, the reason why it's important is because they were exiled to Babylon, and they remained his people. And they were exiled a second time. And half of Christianity or more says they are not his people. And yet Moses secured an eternal request here. And this is showing us that Israel of today is the Lord's people. And that's all there is to it. This is why this is such an important thing to be so exacting and so precise in, because every single thing in our dispensational theology is based on what we're seeing in these verses right here. And you wonder why we go through the Bible line by line and even word by word is because if we don't have this surety, guess what? For Israel, if we don't have this surety, then we don't have the surety either. I'm telling you, what Jesus did for us would not mean the same thing if we could come to this passage here and say Israel can lose its salvation as a collective people. Individually, they have to come to the Lord, but the promise in the Bible must stand from the Lord or any promise is not valid. And that's what's so important, and that's why I'm stressing this so intimately here. In an astonishing understanding of the precept that I just took time to explain to you, Adam Clark wrote the following concerning the promise of this verse. Okay, now as I read, I want you to remember something about Adam Clark. He lived from 1762 until 1832. Even at that early point in our history and long before we had TV and knew anything about the Jews in the world and all of the things that are going on, right? In 1900 years after they were scattered as a people, actually 1800 years during his lifetime, Adam Clark realized that God was still even then, and during his lifetime, saving Israel for something marvelous in the future. Now, listen to what this astute scholar said, because the rest of the world says, we've replaced Israel. They're out. And listen to what Adam Clark says. From the day in which he brought them out of Egypt to the present day, meaning 1762 to 1832, he has kept them a distinct, unmixed people. Who can account for this on any principle but that of a continual, especial providence and a constant divine interference? The Jews have ever been a people fond of money. Had they been mingled with the people of the earth among whom they have been scattered, their secular interests would have been greatly promoted by it. And they who have sacrificed everything besides to their love of money on this point have been 
incorruptible. They chose in every part of their dispersions, meaning all over the world, China, America, wherever, all over the world, every part of their dispersions rather to be a poor, despised, persecuted people and continue separate from all the people of the earth than to enjoy ease and affluence by becoming mixed with the nations. For what great purposes must God be preserving this people? For it does not appear that any moral principle binds them together. They seem lost to this. And yet in opposition to their interests, for which in other respects they would sacrifice everything, they are still kept distinct from all the people of the earth. For this and a special providence alone can account. That was a wise man to see this when the rest of the world had said they're gone, we're Israel, we've replaced them, and they have nothing to do with anything in the future. That man understood something because he looked at this promise from God and he inserted that comment into this verse. Even at such an early date and long before any possible restoration of Israel to their land was conceived, Clark looked at this promise of the Lord and he knew that it had future implications for them as a people. The Lord had granted Moses' request to include everything since verse 12, but without having the chiastic structure highlighted, the verses seemed difficult to grasp and to follow. But with it available, the entire passage comes into clear focus. The request of Moses are granted. And so it validates the truth of the next words. Verse 17 continues, For you have found grace in my sight. What was unspoken in the pages of the Bible thus far but which is implied as having been said because of Moses' words of verse 12 is now spoken in an outright manner. Because of Moses' intercession on behalf of his people, the Lord explicitly states, you have found grace in my sight. Now stop and think on this from a new covenant perspective. If Moses was given such great and such enduring promises from the Lord at a time when all of Israel had failed, and considering Moses' state as a mere human mediator, how much more assured should we be of the greater and more eternal promises of Jesus Christ, who is our mediator? He is the God-man who is there before the throne of his Father, interceding for us moment by moment as we fail to live up to his absolute perfection. Paul may have been thinking of this passage when he wrote these words from the book of Romans. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 17 continues, and I know you by name. The chiasm is quickly racing in the opposite direction now. These words correspond to verse 12, which started our verses today. Moses was favored by the Lord, known to him by name. Because of this, he could mediate out such a weighty and marvelous promise from him. How much more then can we anticipate from the mediation of Jesus Christ? He, the Son of the Father, is known in the most intimate way of all, and he speaks on our behalf, ever petitioning for us. Because of Christ, we are intimately known by name. There could be no greater assurance in all of heaven or earth of that which we possess because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Stepping back to Moses for a moment, what is ironic is that his petition for the Lord's presence to be with the people until they received their rest will actually come back to bite him personally. He will die outside of the land of Canaan for not having hallowed him in the midst of the children of Israel. Though judgment will come upon the offenders of idolatry of the golden calf, and judgment will come upon many more, including Moses, 
before the wilderness wanderings are ended, the people as a whole would never, never, never have the divine presence of God removed from them. Moses actually ended by taking the guilt of the people upon himself. That's another marvelous picture of Christ in the countless thousands of pictures that we've seen already. The tabernacle will be built after all. The presence will reside in their midst and the people will be marvelously separated from the nations of the world. Like his forefather Jacob, Moses has struggled with God and with men and he has prevailed. Because of this, he has a personal request of the Lord. Verse 18, and he said, please show me your glory. Moses could have requested this at any previous time, but he only does so after he has secured the restoration of his people. This is amazingly similar to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Only after having completed the work that he was assigned to do on behalf of his people, did Jesus ask again to share in the glory with his father. Here are his words. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now that the destiny of Israel is secure, the desires of Moses need to be quenched. He had experienced fellowship with God beyond anything, any man since Adam had experienced, and yet everything he had seen to this point only made him desirous of more. He wanted to fill himself up with the goodness of the Lord, and so he asks, Hareni na et kebodecha, show me, I pray, your glory. Exactly what he is requesting is debated, but if one assumes that Moses was already aware of the Genesis account, then he is asking to see what Adam saw. He is asking to see the visible representation of the Lord who walked in perfect fellowship and harmony with our first father. Before sin clouded man's mind, he walked in fellowship with his creator. But when sin entered Adam, he hid from him and he stood in fear of him. Moses is asking that this division be ended and that a more perfect fellowship, the glory of God, be revealed to him. He has seen numerous and marvelous manifestations of God already, but they concealed more than they revealed. Moses' desire is for that to end. Show me your glory, O Lord, this I pray. Reveal to me that which I most desire to know. Let me see your goodness set before me here on this day and reveal to me the path on which I should go. Here in your word I come to seek your face, and here in your word do I come each day. It guides me in life from place to place. Show me your glory, O Lord, this I pray. Open my eyes to the majesty set before me. Show me your glory, O Lord, this I pray. And there I shall sing praises to you by the glassy sea. Until then, I will seek you in your word day unto day. Our third thought today is, here is a place by me. It's verses 19 through 23. Verse 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This promise is fulfilled in the words of chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. He promises a special revelation of himself to Moses where he will reveal all of his goodness before him. The word for goodness, tuv, is one which indicates beauty, goodness, welfare, and the like. This goodness is certainly not a physical brilliance so much as it was the ethical reality of who the Lord is, represented elsewhere in Scripture by physical brilliance. This is the infinitely ethical purity of God, which transcends anything that a human could ever grasp. Further, the attributes of God are many, and they are all good, but some of them carry a negative connotation. 
Justice, for example, carries the connotation of judgment on sin. As Moses is a fallen man, he could not bear to see the infinite purity in this manner. What Moses will behold is the merciful, gracious, compassionate creator in a manner that he could assimilate. And so he passes by. The Lord says that he will do something extra. Verse 19 continues, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. The noun here is used for the pronoun. This is something common in scripture. To proclaim a name is to proclaim the essence of the being which the name represents. The name will be proclaimed or called out, as the word implies, for Moses' sake. He will be neither surprised and thus terrified, nor will he blink and miss his chance at the unique revelation of the Lord. Jehovah will proclaim his coming as an exceptional act of grace to his trusted servant. It is something unmerited, and yet it is something which defines who he is. He is the God of all grace. Verse 19 continues, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The Lord is notifying Moses now that he will, in fact, be gracious towards him, and thus towards the people on whose behalf he is petitioning. But he is not doing this to curry their favor. Rather, there are some who will be punished in light ways, and some who will be punished with a heavy hand. Others will be pardoned and receive mercy. However, this doesn't mean that they are better or more righteous than those who receive punishment, but because of his own sovereign will in his workings in redemptive history. His grace and compassion are neither arbitrary, nor are they intended to curry favor or to show vindictiveness. Instead, God is sovereign. His judgments are righteous, and his ways are perfect. What he does is a result of who he is and what he has determined. Paul uses this very verse in Romans chapter 9 to upturn the self-righteous attitude of guess who? The Jews. What shall we say then, Paul asks? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, or nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The Lord was not obligated to forgive Israel, nor was he bound to show Moses his goodness. He was gracious because Moses found grace in his eyes. Grace is getting what one does not deserve, and mercy is not getting what one does deserve. The person who receives either cannot boast of what he has received, and the person who does not receive cannot find fault in what he has not received. Verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. These words here have to be taken in the greater context of the Bible. It is not an inability to see God, but it is an inability to see the particular sight which God refers. God revealed himself to Jacob, as Genesis 32 verse 30 points out. It said, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. The name Peniel means face of God. And so he saw that sight which God chose to reveal. However, he did not see the fullness of God represented by his face. Even in our eternal state, we will not see the fullness of God, nor could we. God is infinite in his being. For us to see God in his face or in his infinite nature would mean that we would need to be infinite as well, able to comprehend all of who he is. For us to do that would mean that we would have to be God. But there is one and only one God. In Revelation 22, it says this, And there shall be no more curse, 
but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and he, his name shall be on their foreheads. We will behold the lamb. We will see his face as he endlessly, ceaselessly reveals the infinite father to us. There will never be a time when we will have seen all of God. Even unto the ages of ages of ages, it will not happen. There will always be something more to know. This is why Moses could not see the face of the Lord. He could not behold all that God is. Verse 21, and the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. Here we have a picture being developed for us. The Lord has a specific place in mind, which is near to him. He asked Moses to stand al-Hatsur or on the rock. There is a definite article in front of rock. It is not a rock, but the rock. This is where Moses is to position himself. Matthew Henry rightly says this about the rock. Anybody know what the rock is? There you go. Matthew Henry says the rock in Horeb was typical of Christ, the rock, the rock of refuge, salvation, and strength. Happy are they who stand upon this rock. When the glory of the Lord passes by, Moses will be at this place of refuge. He will see this marvelous vision, but he will be kept safe while there. The reason is explained in the next verse, verse 22. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. The Lord says as his glory passes by, he will take Moses and place him in the cleft of the rock. The word is Nikara, and it is used only two times in the Bible. Here and in Isaiah 2, verse 21, it indicates that which is dug or gouged out, and thus it is a cleft. The question is, why didn't he just tell Moses to go hide in the cleft of the rock? Instead, he says he will place them there, right? First, he says, you go stand on the rock. And then he says, I will place you in the cleft of the rock. Why would he do that? Anybody? It's confusing, isn't it? It is we who choose to stand upon the rock. That is free will. But only God can place us in Christ. And so there is that synergism of salvation that we talk about time after time after time in the New Testament being pictured right here in this Old Testament passage. And if you don't go down to the very details of each word in each verse, you will never know this. I have not seen a single scholar come to this conclusion, but each word is telling us a story which is combining into a whole, that we are choosing God freely through Jesus Christ, and then God places us in Christ. It is a picture of being saved from the complete destructive power of God in relation to sinful man. One is either in Christ and secure from what must happen when man faces the infinitely holy God, or they are not in Christ and can only make a futile attempt to hide themselves. As I said, the word for cleft, nakara, is used only twice in the Bible. The other time shows the futility of man who attempts to hide from the Lord. Here's what it says in Isaiah. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts, that word, of the rocks, and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When he arises to shake the earth mightily, sever yourselves from such a man who is breath in his nostrils, for of what account is he? Guy can't save himself from the glory and the terror of the Lord, and that's why Moses was safely kept in Christ, just as we will be. When the Lord's glory is revealed, only one of two things can happen. Either you will be consumed by the glory of the Lord because you are not in Christ, or Christ will protect you from the infinite glory of God. 
And that's why we will see Christ forever and never see the fullness of God because Christ is the one that does it for us. Verse 22, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Moses will not just be hidden in the rock, but the Lord will also cover him from his splendor. Thus, he will be both concealed and protected when the perfections of love, grace, mercy, justice, truth, righteousness, holiness, wisdom, and all of the others are revealed. Without such a covering, Moses would be destroyed, but hidden in the rock, he will be spared from that fate. The words of this verse are reflective of the truth spoken by Paul in Colossians chapter 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of on the world. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Our lives are hidden in Christ, the rock. At the same time, we are protected from the wrath of God. His perfections, which we fail to meet in our fallen selves, are kept from us by the covering of Christ, God's right hand of power. However, the glory that was hidden from Moses will be revealed to us in the future. It will be an eternity of God revealing his goodness to us moment by moment without ceasing and without an instant of anything less than awed wonder. Verse 23, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. The verses are filled with anthropomorphisms, hand, face, back, all are human attributes which are being used for us to understand in a limited way what we are intended to know. And yet, At the same time, there is a hint of what God would do in the future through Christ. The term for back is achorai, my back. The word means more than just back, though. It is used to indicate the direction west. When looking towards the Lord in the tabernacle or in the temple, his face would be looking east towards us. Thus, his back would be west. It is the direction which we aspire to go towards, ever towards his face. It is used to indicate the hereafter in Isaiah chapter 41. In other words, things that are yet future. Thus, the rock is Christ, our safe refuge. The hand is Christ, our protector. The face is Christ, the revealer of God. And the back is Christ, the one who is to come. What Moses saw was the glory of Christ as he would come afterwards in human flesh, revealing the Father to us. This is what John 1 verse 14 is referring to. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses saw the revelation of what God was doing in the stream of time in order to bring us back to himself. This is why later in the song of Moses, he wrote these words, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. Moses learned his lesson here, and he's telling them this. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He understood that Jehovah was the rock. The symbolism was revealed to him, and thus God showed him his glory. Verse 23 finishes with these words, but my face shall not be seen. To close out our verses, Moses was reminded that the face of God was not to be seen. But as we already know, Jacob saw his face by the river Jabbok. Abraham saw his face as he traveled toward the destruction of Sodom. Joshua will see his face as he stands as the commander of the Lord's army. 
Gideon, the parents of Samson and others encountered the man who moves throughout time because he is from outside of time. Each saw the man while not seeing the full essence of the Lord. And we too shall see his face as the glory of God streams from him for an infinite number of days. We are hidden in Christ and thus God will allow us to look west towards him as he looks east towards us forever revealing the goodness which Moses tasted for just a single moment in time. If you want a part of that marvelous goodness which God offers, if you seek him but you aren't sure if you sought him in the right way, man, let me tell you something. Today is the day of good news for you. He has his hands out and he is waiting for you to stand upon the rock and to be protected by the covering of Christ, the power of God for all who believe. So I'd like just another minute to tell you about Jesus and how you can be right with God through him. Jesus Christ is fully God, but he is also fully man, and his humanity conceals the glory of God. That's why when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw more of the glory of him, but not all of the glory. They can never conceive that, and nor could we. But Jesus Christ makes God available to us. God stepped out of the infinite realm and he united with human flesh in order to show us God in his heart and in his intent for us. Then he's also shown us himself in the pages of scripture. He's given us this word to show us what he is like and what he expects of us. And this book tells us what he expects of us is to believe on the one whom he would send, revealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. It may be fun to go to the New Testament or to go to all kinds of sermons about easy listening things, but I got to tell you what, if you want to know Christ in his fullness, you've got to look at these passages and you've got to say, I know God has something here for me. And he is saying, I want you to know this person. I want you to stand on this rock and I want you to trust him. And if you do, I will put you in the cleft of that rock. I will put you in Christ. And the way that comes about, I'm going to take you to a verse here and I'm going to explain to you exactly what you need to know in order to be saved. And this is the stumbling block that so many people face in their lives. They say, I need to do something in order to be pleasing to God. I need to do something. Surely it can't be this simple, but here it is. I'm going to start with Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And what that means is that whatever God is now going to tell us is of faith. It is not of you doing something in order to please God. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what God asks of you, is to simply say, I believe that Jesus Christ came. He lived that law that I can't live. He gave his life up in exchange for my sins, which are incurred under that law, and that God has accepted me because of that. I am justified, freed from the guilt of that law. And God raised him from the dead, and you have to believe that God would do that. But it's not that difficult if you think it through, because if he didn't sin under the law, then death can't hold him, because the wages of sin is death. He had no sin of his own, and so he had to come out of that grave. And so I'm going to finish with this second part of that verse right here. It says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. God asks you to accept that Jesus Christ is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's all he asks of you, nothing else. He does ask other things after that, but I'm talking about being saved and being allowed to be hidden in the cleft of the rock, our Lord Jesus. Please do it today. Our closing verse comes from Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, that's not written to the church, folks. That's written to Israel. We can know that this is also pertaining to us someday in the future. But God never, never, never will leave Israel because his promise is sure. And if he won't leave Israel, disobedient, stiff-necked Israel, and all they had was a human mediator to work out this deal, how much more sure should you be that he will never leave you because he has given you a guarantee? One, his son tells you. Two, his word tells you. And three, the Bible says that you are sealed with his spirit the moment you believe. You are safe and you are secure in his midst. No doubt about it. Next week is Exodus uh, 34, verses 1 through 9. Moses asks, set for us this precedence. It's entitled, Take Us as Your Inheritance. That'll be our 94th Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the water and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. Our uh, poem today is based on these verses entitled Safe in the Cleft of the Rock. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, bring up this people. So you say to me, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Who will it be? Yet you have said, I know you by name, which is right. And you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. All right. And that I may in your sight find grace and consider that this nation is your people here in this place. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What I have spoken is true. Then he said to him, if your presence with us does not go, do not bring us up from here. It would be better that we stayed here, even so. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? Surely then we would see that in us you delight. So we shall be separate, your people and I, as if a new birth from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. This word shall not be broken. And he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So this is the thing that I shall do. Gracious to whom I will be, gracious will I be, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Thus it is, as you now see. But he said, you cannot see my face, this word I give, for no man shall see me and live. Then the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock and you shall see. So it shall be while my glory passes by, that in the cleft of the rock I will put you and will cover you with my hand while I pass by, this I will do. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen, this sight you shall lack. Heavenly Father, how good it is to know that there is a place of safety both in and from your majesty. Jesus does to us your majesty show, and Jesus also reveals it slowly for all eternity. And so we are not consumed by your glory. Instead, we can revel in it, seeking out your face. This is the marvel of the gospel story. This is why we come to gather in this place. Thank you, O God, that for the ages we will glory in you because of what Jesus Christ for us alone does too. And so in his name, we give you all of our praise and we shall do so for all the ages, even for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful story, even from an Old Testament passage, which is just quickly read and 
kind of passed over. Oh, that was nifty. What's next? We find absolute marvel. We find New Testament truths. We find things that are so precious to our hearts when we're in a time of trial or trouble or distress. We, we, we get lost, Lord. We get misdirected. We wonder what's happening in the world. Why is this happening to my husband? Why is this happening to my child? Why is my mother sick? Why are these things happening? And we get confused, Lord. But if we can come here and we can put in our heart these truths and we can say, I will trust this word and I will certainly trust what it says, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then all of it comes back into focus. It is so wonderful, Lord, to know these things and to be able to stand upon them. And I would pray that each person here would take the time each day to wake up and read from the New Testament epistles, Paul's letters from Romans through the book of uh, Philemon, and that they would memorize them, that they would think on them, that they would ponder them day after day after day so that they don't come up short in their, their thinking when bad things do happen. I would pray this for each of them and each person listening online as well. Lord God, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we commit the Lord's table to you, and we do it in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and there Paul writes the words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he gave thanks over it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper as well. And he would have given a blessing over it. Excuse me. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the, this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And while we're taking a moment of silence in the presence of the Lord, I want to tell you, I forgot to tell you earlier that Sergio and Rhoda are in America and they're flying right now from New York down to their home in Fort Lauderdale. So we want to thank the Lord for that as well. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you that Sergio and Rhoda had a good time in Israel, and that they're here safely, and uh, we just, we uh, thank you for hearing the prayers of all the people that have been submitted, and they weren't all submitted directly to you, but you know what they are, and we pray for each one of them that has been sent down to us over the past week. And Lord, you are good and you are gracious, and we do look to that hand of grace in our times of need, and uh, it sure is good to know that it's there. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the rock in which we are safely hidden. Thank you for that, and thank you for the surety we have that heaven is waiting for us because of him. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in his name. Amen. Amen.